Welcome to the last, last service uh, in, uh, in this sanctuary. So uh, this morning is our last Sunday morning here, and this is our last Sunday evening here. And uh, if you missed it, there was a really cool thing about the book and uh, membership and all that, but we can't do it again, so you'll just have to know that there's at least a dozen people uh, who were here for the dedication of this sanctuary 50 years ago and, uh, and who are also still members of it now. Now, <clears throat> I, I shared with you guys that in our record book, the oldest record we have is somebody who was baptized in September of 1880, some 140 years ago or so, 42. How's that work out? I don't know. I went to college in Arkansas, and they just let me be. Uh, <clears throat> however, and then I saw, I saw this afternoon, uh, Marshall Blaylock, who's the pastor at First Baptist Church, Charleston, South Carolina, posted that uh, tomorrow, so the 26th of September, is their 340th anniversary. So, wow, 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 yeah, Charleston Baptists down there have been around all proud because they're older than America, but uh, whatever. <clears throat> but yeah, we... Uh, it was a delight to worship with you guys this morning, and it will be a delight to worship with you this evening. Uh, we'll close uh, our final, final service. Uh, we'll close this evening with baptism and with singing It's Well With My Soul, which will be fitting uh, for this sanctuary and for this people. It's unusual usually for us to uh, baptize at the end, but we'll, we'll sort it out and make it work and, uh, and have a good time. Um, just thinking, if I'm going to send you a message about when we're ready, I might need to make sure I take that phone with me when I go up there. <laughs> Details. Oh, yeah, my brain, I'm emo are you guys also a little emotionally weary? <laughs> my brain's shot from uh, just good things and a, a good worship time uh, together. <clears throat> Our text for this evening is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 967. 966, 967, Acts chapter 2. This morning, uh, I preached for you what was my first sermon here at Talatha Baptist Church, uh, Joshua chapter 7. That was the first sermon I preached as pastor here seven years ago, and so I thought it was fitting uh, to have it again uh, as a good bit of symmetry, symmetry. But now that we're here for the last, last service, I feel like we should go even further back and our text for tonight is the very first sermon preached ever. So not just my first one, but the very first sermon ever, which is in Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon of Peter. Now, uh, the disciples were stashed away in the upper room. The doors were all locked up so that they could hide out. Uh, Jesus appears to them, and Jesus tells them you know, that the Holy Spirit is going to come on them. And after Jesus ascends into heaven... They're all together worshiping the Lord, and in fact, the Holy Spirit descends on his disciples, and they all begin to prophesy. They all begin to speak in other languages, testifying to the great glory of God and how wonderful he is. So as everyone begins to testify uh, to the grace of God, and people from all over are hearing them speak in their own home native languages, there's just a little bit of chaos because people don't know what's happening. And so the people who are gathered there who are hearing the gospel, they, they just assume the worst of these, these disciples. And they assume this is just chaos and nonsense uh, or that they're drunk, as the scripture says. And Peter proclaims to them, no, no, 
This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So Peter stands up alone in front of the entire crowd, and he gives what is the first Christian sermon, at least. Let's pray together, and let's read this sermon. Father God, I pray that the reading of your word and the hearing of your word would give us the strength to believe. And I pray that we would trust you and believe. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice, and he proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews, and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you, and pay attention to my words. These people are not drunk as you, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. It will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servant in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man attested to you by God with miracles, with wonders, with signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. We'll stop there for a moment. So Peter begins the sermon, and he begins explaining to them, no, this isn't chaos, this isn't wildness. People are hearing all the disciples speak, not just Peter, but the Holy Spirit's poured out on all of the believers. And they're all speaking in tongues, which is to say they're speaking in such a way where all these people gathered in Jerusalem from all sorts of home countries are hearing and understanding the gospel in their own language. It's an incredible, miraculous moment, and some glibly say along the lines of, ah, oh, they must be drunk. Peter starts off, no, no, no. Rather, the word of God is being fulfilled. And he talks about this time when the Holy Spirit of God is going to be poured out on everyone. The Holy Spirit was given to certain people at certain times all throughout the Old Testament. When Saul is to become king, the Holy Spirit comes down on Saul, and he begins to prophesy powerfully. And then... After Saul disobeys God and disobeys God, the Holy Spirit is removed from Saul, and instead a troubling spirit comes on him to give him grief. 
The Holy Spirit comes down on Samuel to help lead God's people. The Holy Spirit comes down on David to lead God's people. The Holy Spirit would come down on this person or that person or this person to lead God's people. But then, when the Holy Spirit came down on the prophet Joel, Joel said he saw by the power of God this time in the future that was going to happen when something wildly greater would happen. The Holy Spirit would come down on everyone. The Holy Spirit would come down on all of them, not, not just sons and daughters who would uh, dream dream. They're not just sons and daughters who would prophesy, but also older men who would dream dreams. Not just men, but women, everyone. The Holy Spirit would come on powerfully to take a share in the leadership of God's people. And on that day, though the Israelites who first heard Joel give the prophecy might have thought Joel was talking about Israel when he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God always had a wider purpose than that. On this day when the Holy Spirit comes down on everyone who believes, on that day, anyone, everyone, Jewish or not, anyone and everyone who hears and who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We ought to remember for ourselves that thief on the cross who saw that day and was there on that day when Christ was crucified. We have to always remember this one who did not have occasion for baptism. This one who did not have occasion to spend an extended time in prayer or to pray or, pray or even kneel before Christ. This one who, who could don no clothing or walk down in front of anyone, and yet he called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Remember me, and Jesus said, you're coming with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. If him, then you as well. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the center of what Christianity is. God is that good. God is that kind. And God is this patient with you to give you this time of your life to allow you to turn and call upon the name of the Lord. There's two phrases that come up over and over again in the Old Testament. That in those times, people started calling upon the name of the Lord. It would say about certain times in the Old Testament with Israel, when they were in, uh, when they were in persecution, when they were off in captivity and slavery, that at those times, people would start to call upon the name of the Lord. And then there's these other times, specifically in the book of Judges, where it would say the opposite. People would do whatever seemed good to them. These two are contrary to each other, but they are the constant disposition of all people ever. There are these times when people begin to call upon the name of the Lord, and there are these times when people do whatever seems good to them. And so the question lies before you as well. Which will you be? What's your life going to be? Are you going to be the person who says, you know, I live by whatever seems good to me. This seems like a good idea. That's, everybody should be able to do what they want. I'll, you know, I don't, I'm just going to, I'm going to do my thing. You leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. People just do whatever they want. In Scripture, this leads clearly to evil, great evil. And I tell you, in the world, in all times, this leads to evil. But there's also this time when people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. For many of us, we've been doing this for a long time. For you, perhaps tonight is your night to begin and to join us. Either way, the, pro uh, the promise stands for all of us. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, uh, it's also important we look at this, verse 23. Here's uh, in, Paul, in Peter's sermon. 
Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. This is an important point that Peter makes that we all have to remember. They did not take his life. He laid it down. They did not take Jesus' life. He laid it down for us. There was nobody in authority over him that could do this to him lest he lay it down, and he laid down his life for us. And yet, Peter still tells them, Christ was laying down his life for you, but at the same time, you were in fact hiring a bunch of ruffians, lawless men, in order to make this happen. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him, although this was his will. He laid down his life for you, and yet they did wrong. You'll understand from this sermon a sort of an outline so far of how one should preach any sermon. Where's Peter start? Quoting a big passage of scripture. Where do we start? All right, open up. Uh, I don't quote it for you, but I'll, uh, I'll read it for you in front of you. He starts there, and then he goes straight to what Christ has done and who Christ is. Let's continue reading here in our passage, picking up in verse 29. Brothers and sisters, Peter says, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. And since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's a short sermon. You sometimes might wish for shorter ones as well. But still, it's perfect what he says, and it has all of the elements in it. He begins with a quoting of scripture. He begins with this passage that he recites. And he simply declares that it's true. These prophecies, the prophecy of Joel, the prophecy of David in Psalm 16, these prophecies have come to be fulfilled now in front of you, he says. He opens up scripture, tells them what it says, and says, all of that, it's true. <laughs> That's mostly all I do, is open up, read some scripture, and tell you all, it's true. <laughs> All of it, by the way, is true. There's never that much to add to it. A little bit by way of explanation and illustration, but nothing else to say other than it's all true. And then he proclaims this gospel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he also confronts their sin, which is an important piece of this. 
as we say, nobody comes to be a Christian until they recognize their need for Christ. Being forgiven of sins has to start with you recognizing that you have sin in your life. And so he says to them, not meanly, the way he says it, perhaps you would think, oh, he's here to mock them. So, hey, y'all nailed him to a cross. Look what kind of evil y'all did. Y'all delivered over the very Messiah that God sent to death. You could hear that and take that as a mocking tone, but that's not what Peter's doing. Peter's simply acknowledging the reality that they did wrong. And we have to do the same thing. When Scripture comes at us, <laughs> as it does, it convicts us likewise. You know, I regularly hear people, it's just the way of things. I regularly hear people saying, oh, that sermon, that one was for me. Oh, you I'm just given the odds... In a normal Sunday in a room, I'm not thinking about you necessarily. Just given these sheer amount of people, I am always thinking about somebody. Um, but, but just given the odds, uh, maybe it was somebody else that day. But this is what the Word of God does. It cuts into us. It points to right where it's supposed to in our hearts. And this is what it is supposed to do. The only way for a sick person to get well is to begin by recognizing that the diagnosis of sickness is true. The only way for a sinner to be forgiven of their sins is by the recognition, I am in fact a sinner and have done wrong. But the good news at the end of the sermon is this, God raised Jesus and we are all witnesses, Peter says. And I say that everyone is a Christian, we say the same thing. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. I know this. This, this faith that we have, it's not about trying to act better, and it's not simply about gathering every now and again to feel good. We do this because Jesus was killed, buried, and didn't stay dead. He rose again. The center of our faith, so the center of this sermon, is that Christ is, in fact, alive. After all, Paul will say, if Jesus did not rise, then we are to be counted as fools. If he's still dead, then all of this is useless. But he's not. Jesus rose again on the third day, and so he is alive forevermore. That's the, the main point of Peter's sermon here, you understand. So if you're keeping up, there are four pieces here that are awfully important. The reading or reciting of Scripture. The declaration, it's true. <laughs> There's not always more to add to it than that, but this is what God said. It's true, and I'm here to bear witness today that it's true. Requires the recognition of the problem of sin. And then this call of hope to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I get excited about Christmas all the time. But really, every sermon is not just a Christmas sermon. Every sermon's an Easter sermon. Because we're always declaring that Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive. And this is not just for sermons, you understand. I'm not trying to just train you tonight to be pastors, though you're by all means proclaim following this pattern. Uh, anytime you're talking about Scripture, follow this same pattern. But rather, this is how all faith is communicated. This is how anybody goes from not believing to believing. Have you trusted Christ? How did you go about getting faith for the first time? 
a VBS, a revival, a friend who brought you to a Bible study, somebody who just shared the gospel with you. One way or another, these elements, I assure you, were all present in one way or another. We hear the word of the Lord. Somebody witnesses that it's true to us. We're able to recognize that our sins are real, but we end trusting that Jesus Christ is alive. And if he's alive, our sins are forgiven. This is not just a sermon outline. It's the outline of our faith. If you do not have faith yet and you want it, here's how you'll go about getting it. Listen to the word of God. Know that it is true. And recognize that we're all sinners and have all done wrong and evil. Not just polite things, but evil, evil, all of us. And yet Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again. His sacrifice was sufficient for all of our sins. He is alive. So there's only one part left. The crowds in Peter's day, they all believe. They hear the gospel, they begin to believe, and what's next? The cycle's not over with. You've heard these parts of the gospel message, but what happens? Verse 37. Well, when the crowds heard this, when they heard this, they were pierced to their hearts. And they said to Peter, and they said to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? This is just another part of it, if you're curious. The word of God pierces to the heart. I've experienced this myself many times, both when I, I listen to a lot of sermons and watch a lot of sermons and have heard plenty of my life as well, uh, both from David Bird and from plenty of other people as well, too. And uh, plenty of times you hear the word of God, and it just pierces your heart. And you say, what do I need to do? I got to do something. What do I do? And that's what happens. They hear it and they believe it. It strikes right to the middle of them and they believe it. And they go, oh, no, that was God's Messiah. All the miracles. They how could we have been so foolish? How could we have been so evil? All the miracles testified that that was him. That had to be him. He rose from the grave. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. All the prophecies are being fulfilled. They're struck to the heart. And they say, what do we have to do? They, they cry out to Peter. It's, like it's, it's, it's as if begging. What must I do to be saved? What do I have to do? And there's an answer. If you, likewise, hear the word of God and believe it, you'll have to ask the same question. What do I have to do to be saved? This answer is very important. Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what he says to him. How about just two words? Repent and be baptized. These words were awfully important to the early Baptists. As you might recall, we showed up at some point. Uh, in the very beginning in Scripture, all the baptisms that are recorded are believers who are baptized. Nobody's uh, baptized who is not a believer. There are no infants that are christened or baptized in Scripture. Uh, that comes later, and it comes fairly recently later, uh, at least 200 years after these words have been written. Uh, 200 years is a long time, whether you live in Charleston or you live in Aiken. That's still a long amount of time. And so it's about 200 years later that that comes, but then it stays for a long time as nobody is reading Scripture or able to read the language of Scripture because nobody speaks the language that the Scripture is written in. 
until the printing press comes on the scene and until people start to translate Scripture, until people start to read it for themselves, and then this very verse they come to, this is the verse that started what we do. They're reading along and rejoicing, and they go, wait, wait, wait. There's a process to it. Repent, then be baptized. There's an order that has to happen. The very first Baptists decided upon this. They read this very verse, and they said, this is why we have to baptize the way we have to baptize. Because there is, you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you turn away from everything sinful in your life, give your life to Christ, and then you're baptized. They, they saw an order to this, and we continue to see an order to this. I offer this to you by way of explanation for why we do what we do. This is not to deny all of our brothers and sisters out there who trust Christ but who practice baptism differently are not believers. Again, you have to go back to the thief on the cross. He trusted Christ, and it is faith alone that saves us. But if you're not stuck on a cross at the moment and you have any more time in your life after this moment, then to believe and repent means that you will now obey Christ, which means you'll have the opportunity to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That everybody who believes receives the Holy Spirit as well. Verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children. And for all of those who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. He says, this promise goes out to everyone who is hearing it there. And for all their children. But wait, there's more. It is for anyone, no matter how far away they are across space or time, who hears this. The same message is for all of them. Repent and be baptized. Verse 40, with many other words he testified. And he strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. This powerful passage, as much as we go back to Adam and Eve because it's so central as the first people and we mirror them, we have to go back to the first sermon as well. When the message is proclaimed and our hope and faith are proclaimed and the right question is asked, what do I need to do? For we who believe, we know that the answer is, call on the name of the Lord. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that is, believes, must also turn away from their sin. If you aren't willing to change your life, then you don't really believe. These aren't separate steps. Repent and obey, repent and believe, they're the same things. If you believe, you will change your life. If you believe this, it changes everything for you. So I say to you, believe and repent mean the same thing. So all of you tonight, believe Jesus Christ, call in the name of the Lord and turn away from your sins. That's one command. <laughs> to be done all together and in one place. And then, once you have done this, now that you're starting to obey Christ with your life, then do what Christ has commanded and be baptized. Faith and repentance are what save us, but baptism demonstrates this faith. And so we do it obediently to demonstrate our faith to other people. 
Baptism demonstrates our faith like this. It is first a symbol. I talk about this regularly because here we are Baptists. Baptism symbolizes several things for us. The way we baptize and baptizing someone back like this. It first demonstrates our very faith of what Peter's talking about in this sermon, that Jesus died and rose again. We, in being baptized, proclaim to everyone seeing, I believe that Jesus died and was buried and that he rose again. Do you believe this? Second, it demonstrates this, a commitment towards repentance. It's a way of us saying, that way I used to live, that person, I'm done with that person. I'm going to bury that person who I used to be and turn away from those sins, and now I'm going to live a new life. It's as if the old person is dead and a new person walks in front of you. That's how profound the change in my life is going to be. Have you repented of your sins like this? You can respond to that one as well, dear Christian. The answer is yes. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? And are you committed to repenting of your sins? It demonstrates, thirdly, that we believe Jesus' death washed us clean of all of our sins. That central imagery of baptism, we believe that Jesus' death and resurrection washed us, and so we baptize. Do you believe that Jesus' death was good enough to pay for all your sins? Fourth, the, the images of baptism is this. It is our commitment to live a new life now. And fifth, it demonstrates our belief that Jesus is going to come again, and even if we die, we will rise again. Christ didn't just rise from the dead to live forever and have a kingdom of dead people before him. Christ's promise is at just the right time he would return and all the dead in Christ would rise, that they would have their resurrection just like Christ is. And so when we baptize, what we demonstrate is that we believe even if Christ delays or tarries, even if he is patient enough to wait on more sinners and I pass away before then, even if I die, I know that I will rise again just like Christ did. Do you believe this? This is why we baptize as the last thing to do in our, our church sanctuary. We're going to sing a few songs together. Faye's going to come sing a special in just a moment so we can get ready for baptism. Uh, we're going to go up and get ready for baptism. And then we have two who will be baptized tonight. And then the very last thing we do in this worship service, in this sanctuary, in this amount of worship services we have in the sanctuary, is to both baptize, proclaim our faith, and then lastly to sing It's Well With My Soul one more time in here. So, uh, let me say a prayer, and then Faye, come on up. Father God, I thank you that our faith has not changed in all this time. I pray that you would receive our lives as worship indeed. We believe that it is true that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So give us the strength to trust you and to cry out to you, to believe and to repent. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.